Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We'll be looking at the first 15 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 this morning. And so we're continuing this. This is, this is our commitment. We go through books of the Bible, and so we're continuing this, this series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and this is the third message. And if you've, you've been with us the past two weeks, I've been looking forward to, to this passage specifically because in, in these verses, the, the gloom and pressures of chapter 1 and 2 begin to lift uh, and so, so I'm looking forward to the, the lifting. So the last two weeks, they've been, they've been hard, hard to get through, but it's been beneficial, I think. And I've heard from you, it's been beneficial. There's, there's vanity in life. It characterizes life if I'm looking for gain from my toil. But, but now we're, we're going to ha- hit a similar note, from a, but from a different angle. And so, so I think this, this passage, these verses will uh, be a, a great encouragement to you. I hope so. It's, it's been encouraging to me. Uh, in fact, a refrain around our house has been gift, not gain. If you remember last week, I said that, that's, that's one of the, the main points of Ecclesiastes, that, that life in God's world is, is a gift, not gain. And so when I find myself doing something that I'd normally be grumbling about, I say, gift, not gain. doesn't matter how long it takes to clean the house. It's a gift. Let's gift, not gain. And so I hope that you'll be encouraged. Uh, well, when these, the, these verses specifically, in, in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 3, uh, it contains probably one of the most popular, beautiful, well-known po- poems, not just in the Bible, but in all of literature. This poem, you'll, you'll recognize it, I think, when I read it in, in a minute, but it's celebrated and admired among those who have no connection or allegiance to Christianity whatsoever. They just love the poem in verses 1 through 8. Uh, and it's popular, I think, and it's been received so well because it resonates with anyone who's lived life in this world, the, 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 the seasons that are described, everyone that's ever lived can say, yes, I, I understand that, I get it. it, it resonates. And we'll get to the poem, but, but before we do, I don't often do this, but I just want to lay out the logic of verses 1 through 15 because the point isn't the first eight verses, okay? So, so if you hear a sermon that, that's verses 1 through 8 and stops, that, that is a, that's a poor handling of the passage because verses 1 through 8 are followed by some verses that that's point is made. The point for 1 through 8 is, is seen in the verses that follow. And so what this preacher is doing, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is doing in these first eight verses, is similar to what he did back in chapter 1. So if you remember, all the way back in chapter 1, the first sermon we did where he talked about the ryth- rhythmic pattern of the created world with the, with the sun and the wind and the water. And there's this pattern to creation. And just like that pattern was emphasized in chapter 1, here, he wants to highlight a, a similar cyclical pattern. He wants us to know that, that even in our personal lives, not just creation, but in personal lives, there are patterns or there's regularities or cadences that we all experience individually as the years of our life ebb and flow. So, so even in personal lives, there's this pattern that he wants us to recognize. And so this poem paints a picture of this constant changing of seasons and experiences of the human experience so that the human beings in general spend their days in the ways described in the activities that lie between the poles of activities represented in the opposite. So there's this whole list of opposites um, that are detailed in this poem. But the point is, hey, human experience, human existence in general is lived between all of these poles that are marked out. And so the sole purpose of the poem is not for us to get lost in its beauty or in its descriptions. The sole purpose of the poem is to force us as the readers to recognize that even in our individual lives, there are seasons and times and experiences that come and go, that ebb and flow. And at the end of the day, they come or go without our permission or really our control at all. 
And at the end of the day, just like the patterns in creation, even the patterns of our own personal lives are really, at the end of the day, ultimately outside of our control. That's what he wants us to see, that, that we're helpless in this flow of seasons. There's a time for everything, one commentator says, but we're not arranging them on our stopwatch. Three hours for laughter today, and, and next week I'll have just 20 minutes of sorrow, please. Following that, I'll embark on an entirely new chapter of life with great success. And then in two and a half years, I'll be happy to move on to something new. That's not how life works. That's not how seasons come and go. And so if we just stopped at the end of verse 8, these verses left to themselves, they teach a, a sort of a cosmic fate-driven existence, like a hopeless determinism, like, oh, that's just, you're just going to have seasons. Good luck with that. But, but that they're not by themselves. They're followed by verses 9 through 15. And in those verses, which we'll get to, the, the, the preacher steps back and says... Yeah, you can't control the seasons of life. Yeah, you can't always even understand the seasons of your life. There, there's only comfort for you in knowing, not that you can control or gain from your seasons of life, but comfort in knowing that there's a God who is not unaware of your seasons. In fact, there's a God who's in control and sovereign over even your changing seasons. And so he wants us to know that, that there's another actor involved in the seasons that you're going through. And so verses 9 through 15, paint your entire life and every season of it in the context of your creator. Did you know that your seasons of life are lived in the context of a creator who knows your seasons and who is, in fact, in control of your seasons? The preacher wants to lift our eyes to the God who is in control, who's ordered and arranged every season that you've been through. And so maybe you're in a really hard season now. I want you to look to God because he's not unaware of your season. Okay, there's comfort in knowing that there's a God over and above your season, whatever it is. And so knowing that there's a, a, a sovereign actor, a capital A actor in the context of all our seasons enables God's people to live in the midst of changing seasons and the changing seasons of life with joy, enjoying the toil among the seasons. And so knowing that the Lord is Lord of all seasons enables us to take pleasure in our toil regardless of the season. So, with that little bit of, of introduction, let's read verses 1 through 15 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So, you can follow along. I'm going to begin in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 15. You can follow along. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what's planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This 
is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Let's pray together. Father, as we look to your word this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your law. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us your way, that we may walk in your truth. And would you do that in Christ's name? Amen. So, so it's a really basic outline. There, there's two sections that we're going to walk through. Um, first, in verses 1 through 8, we'll see the seasons of life, that, that well-known poem that hopefully you recognized as I read. But then, then the second section, the second point we're going to walk through is, is the focus on, on God, the God of every season. So we'll see the seasons of life, but then he wants us to step back and say, wait a minute, there's a God who is over, who is of every season of life. Because remember, as we come to the end, I want you to know that the seasons of life are not meant to drive us to despair away from God, but the seasons of life are, are meant to drive us to the God who orders the seasons of our, of our life and who makes everything beautiful in its time. So let's start there in verse 1 of chapter 3. Notice verse 1. It begins, there's a, there's a, there's, for everything there's a season, a time for every matter under the sun. If you have the NIV, there's a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heavens. Or if you have the King James, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heavens. And so the point is this poetic description begins is to establish the fact that human experience is nothing more than a tapestry woven together of different times and seasons. There's a season for everything, and your life is a tapestry of all these different seasons. So this preacher is saying here at the outset, here's the summary of all that's going to come after. Your life is filled with seasons that, that go to and fro, and there's actually a season or a time for everything. And he's going to list that out in the verses that follow. And so he's saying there's a time for everything. Your life is, is a weaving together of different times and seasons. And so the preacher, to make his point, is going to list off 12 pairs of opposite seasons or times. Did you notice that there's, there's just pairs? And they seem to be related to one another in, in terms of opposites. And these times, as, as he runs through this list of, of 12 pairs, this list gives times and seasons that every human being who's ever lived on this earth has lived in between. And these 24 seasons are to be understood not as prescriptive, but as descriptive. So, so he's not saying, hey, there's a time for this, so you better be aware when that time comes so you can do it. It's not prescriptive. He's not saying, hey, here's, you, what you, here's how you need to act. He's simply saying it's descriptive, saying the, these seasons, you're going to go through them, and when they come, you're going to know that they're there. It's just descriptive of human experience under the sun. That's, that's his point. These seasons represent the human existence as it can be observed. It's not that every human being will experience every one of these seasons, but that all men and women and boys and girls and grandmas and grandpas live their lives and spend their days in ways described and in the activities that lie between the 12 pairs of opposites that are, that are listed. And so, so it's a, a representation of life under the sun that's filled with seasons that are different. Now, we're not going to go through each one of these seasons, number one, because some of them, it's not even clear what, what, is, what is referenced there, but also because the idea the preacher wants to convey is that all these elements together, as they're considered together, are to be understood as representative of the human life. That's live fluctuating between seasons. 
And so to do so, he points us to various times and seasons that are somewhat difficult to organize. And so there's really no rhyme or reason on how they're organized. There's really not even a clear reason how they relate to one another. The, the only thing that we can say, I think, with confidence is that, is that the first pair is, is intentionally placed at the beginning. So we see the first pair is the most all-encompassing seasons. So there's a time to be born and a time to die. Right? Everyone here has experienced the first and will experience the second at some point in the future. And every other season that you go through is going to be between those two seasons. Those mark the beginning and the end. And for everyone that lives under sun, there is a time for both. And you really can't control either one, can you? No one here decided on which day they would be born. Right? Mothers can't even decide. Right? Some mothers wish their kids would come much sooner. Right? It's uncomfortable to be pregnant. I don't know, but I can assume. But the, it comes. The time comes and you're born. Then the second time comes and you die. And you can't control it. Sometimes it comes sooner than we think it ought. Sometimes it comes later than we think we ought. But there's a time for both. And you can't, you can't be in both seasons at the same time. But other than the first pair, there doesn't seem to be a discernible purpose to the overall order in which these opposites are placed, which, is, which I think is part of his point. You can't make sense of the seasons that make up your life. They just come. When they come, you know what time it is. But I mean, j- just think about trying to, trying to understand verse 5. For example, he says, there's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. And so during one season, the stones aren't needed, right? The, the time, you get rid of the stones. You don't need them. But then the other season comes... And it's, they're needed, so it's time to gather them together. Same stones, but depending on the season, either you don't need them or you need them. And so, so th- there's, there's no way of understanding really what, what, he's, what he's meaning here. His point isn't to look at each one and say, here's what he means. It's simply saying, hey, sometimes you need it, sometimes you don't. It depends on what season you're in, whether you need the stones or not. But also, I, I do think there is one pattern that is discernible that I, that I think helps and I think it is part of what he's getting at. Again, if you read commentators, they, they try and organize these in all different ways. But one, one author said that he has organized them as a mixture of seasons that he, de, that he defines as disquiet and delight. So there's seasons of disquiet and seasons of delight, kind of a negative or a sorrowful and then a happy or joyful. And so listen, I'm going to read the, the quote that he writes. Listen as he explains. He says, the preacher identifies two basic kinds of seasons or times in which we will tend our lots, disquiets and delights. For those prone to draw the world only in pastels and who see God's purpose and nearness only in terms of smiles and victories, the preacher boldly identifies disquieting times. But for those who want to falsely relieve the tension of the, on the other side, who describe the world with only pain and, only see the, and who only see the world in terms of its mud, the preacher counters by describing the delightful things. And so there's this, there's this ebb and flow of, of delights and disquiets. And to anyone who's ever lived in this world, life under the sun, it doesn't take long to realize that life is full of both. It's not all one or all the other. Life is full of seasons that are disquieting and that are delighting. You, you can't live your life full of only delights. It's not going to happen. Neither will you have a life of only disquiets. Your life will fluctuate between seasons of both, and sometimes even in the same day. But there's this ebb and flow. Our lives are filled with beginnings and endings, goods and evils, things we choose and choices we do not make but must deal with. We age. We face realities with relationships and necessities with work. 
We encounter varying human moods and actions. Such occasions await all of us. And so there's this ebb and flow, these changing seasons that we seem to just be floating by helplessly in the wind of our seasons. And so as the poem ends, as he, as he recounts all of these, these pairs, the preacher wants you to know that you have no control over any of, these, any of these things. Yes, you make real reasonable decisions every day, but in reality, we each know that the seasons of life are almost completely out of our hands. There's a time for everything, yes, but we're not arranging them on our stopwatch. We're not deciding when the time of disquiet comes crashing into our seemingly perfect life. The fluctuating seasons are out of control. There's a time for everything, but we're not the ones in charge of setting the schedule. And that's that's what we should take away from these first eight verses. And if that's all he wanted you to know, we could surmise or conclude that this was a depressing, pessimistic, meaningless life that we're living. If if he stopped after eight, like, okay, I'm just just helpless and passive in these these seasons that are coming and going, we could conclude, what, what a vain, worthless life. Good luck. But the messages of verse 1 and 8, that's not all the preacher wants you to know. He transitions and he follows up verses 1 through 8 with the second section. So let's look there at the second section beginning in verse 9 because he begins with a question there. Look at verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Right? This is a shift from the poetic prose to now there's a question. And we want to stop and say, well, wait a minute. Where, where did that come from? What, what does that have to do with, with this, this beautiful poem we just read? Where did that question come from? Yeah, we've heard it before. Right? Remember, that was a question in, verse, in chapters 1 and 2, but it seems out of place here at the, at the end of verse 8. But it's not out of place when you remember what the point of verses 1 through 8 is. Why the author, why the preacher painted pictures of seasons coming and going? He did so because he wants us to know that we have no control at the end of the day over the seasons of our life. He wants us to know, yes, there's a time for everything, but we're not arranging them. We're not in control. And so after the poem in which he painted human life as a tapestry of all these ever-changing seasons, the preacher wants you to know that no matter how many different seasons you go through, whether seasons of delight or seasons of disquiet, no matter how many you go through, at the end of the day, we are all, every one of us, going to experience that final season. We're all going to experience the time to die. The last one we will all eventually experience, the season that marks the end of life under the sun. We're all going to experience that season. And no matter what seasons or how many seasons your life was composed of, no matter how good they were, no matter how bad they were, everything that you accomplished and that you experienced, every season you went through, at the end of the day, you're going to still exit stage left. And you're going to fade from memory. It's going to happen. And so no season that you go through is going to give you any lasting gain from your toil. One commentator says that verse 9 follows verses eight, 1 through 8 as a most powerful sucker punch, like a, like a hit in the gut, takes your breath away. He explains there's a time for everything. Life is a lyrical arrangement of good and bad, of relational complexity and nuanced subtleties, and at the end of it all, you go in a box in the cold, hard ground. What have you gained after living all the seasons of life? Nothing. You're dead. You experienced it all. You came and you went. And, you, and look, you had no lasting gain. You're still going to pass through that final season. Since everything has its time, all the labor of a person by itself cannot change the times. 
All the labor by a person itself cannot change circumstances or control events. So that's his point. You're, you're helpless. There is no gain from your toil. But the preacher, after this question, this sucker punch, in verses 10 through 15, doesn't want us to escape our seasons. He wants us to be able to endure and even enjoy every season. And in order to enable us to do that, he wants to lift our eyes to see the bigger picture. He wants to lift our eyes from, from the zoomed-in view. We can't see the context. can't see how everything's related. But if you back away, you see how all the tapestries weave together. And so that's what he wants to do in verses 10 through 15. And so the two points he makes in these verses to help us kind of understand the bigger picture is first that God is in control and that we can't understand God's plan. Right? So, so he, he walks us through. God is sovereign. God's in control of all your seasons. And then second, you can't understand. It's impossible for you to understand God's plan. And so first, God is in control. Look at verses 10 and 11. Look at how he continues. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so notice, I've seen, he says, that God is the one who's given the children of man business to be busy with. God is the one who's, who's giving and organizing. But more importantly, notice what he says, that God is the one who's made everything beautiful in its time. This means that God has made everything beautifully fitting, beautiful in the sense that it, it all works together. He makes everything fit together. And he does so because he's the one that has the big picture of the puzzle. He sees the cover of the box. He knows what it's supposed to look like. In fact, he's the one who made the puzzle. And as such, he has organized every piece in just the right place. Every season is beautiful because God has placed it exactly when and where it needs to be. God is in control. Now, this goes for seasons of delight as well as seasons of disquiet. God has made all seasons beautiful. And there's a purpose and a plan and the reason that he's done this, the reason he's even able to do this is because he isn't limited by the same times and places that we are. He's not stuck in 2019 waiting to see what happens next year. He's not limited as we are. Our perspective, we, we think our season, this is the end, it's, this is it. But it's not because we don't know God's plan. But he does and he's in control. We don't decide what season comes our way. But we cannot lose the fact that God does. Your season has not escaped God. It has not come apart from his hands. We have the rhythmical pattern of the things that fill our lives, but God does not exist within the same timetable. What he does, as the author says in verse 14, what God does endures forever. And he's the one who sees the end from the beginning. And so he's able to make everything beautiful in its time. Even the activities of verses 2 through 8, which in themselves do not always appear beautiful, have a beauty when they're seen as constituent of parts of the whole work of God. Do you see that? Left to itself, its own season, it, well, it doesn't make sense. Why would God send this my way? Why would this happen? In the midst of the season, we don't understand, but as we recognize that it's part of God's plan, and we can understand it's beautiful in his time. God is in control. 
God is ordering and organizing your life in your season, which is comforting because God sees the bigger picture. But more than that, God is good and wise. Think of the great theologian Garth Brooks. I remember in high school, this song, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. I remember thinking, I'm so thankful for that because I would not be married to this woman if God answered my prayers in high school. But God had the bigger picture. He knows, and I can trust him. God is in control. But this doesn't mean that we always understand. So I'm not saying you have to understand and say, okay, I'm just going to swallow this because God's in control. I recognize there's still difficulty. In fact, the second point is that we can't understand God's plan. So even when we're trying to, we can't. We're not made to. We're not, we can't do it. We're not capable of. Did you notice verse 11? The second half of it, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Maybe if you have an NIV, he has, set, he has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Or a, a translation I don't often use, but I think this is, it, it's a good translation for this verse to convey what, what he's trying to say. The New Living Translation says that God has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, even though he's planted eternity in the human heart, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. If you have the King James Version, I don't think this translation is, is really fitting with what he's trying to say, where it says he has set the world in their heart. I don't think that's the point. I think it's time. It's, it's, a, it's a focus on time. The eternity is set in our hearts, but we can't understand it. And so the, the point is we can't understand God's plan, who, is, who knows from beginning to end, even though there's a desire to know and understand. I think this is what is driving the preacher in chapters 1, 2, and 3. We want to know. We know there's got to be a bigger plan. There's got to be a purpose to this world, to this life, to all that's included. We instinctively know that there is a bigger picture because God has put that in our hearts to know. Wait, it fits together somehow, yet we still cannot know how it fits together. That's the dilemma. We know it fits together, but, but because of who we are, God has made it because we're human, we're limited, we're finite. We can't understand how it fits together. We cannot know the bigger picture because ultimately we're not God. But here, here's why we don't, we're not left stuck in this dilemma. We're not stuck in this dilemma because God is God and can be trusted. And so we don't have to say, well, well does his big plan involve my good? We don't have to question that because we know who he is. We don't have to know how this season fits in the, the larger picture of my life. But we can trust, even without knowing or even understanding, how is this for my good? We can trust because we know God. And we know his character. Just like our children. My children don't understand why they need to wear shoes when riding their bikes. They don't understand why they need to go to bed at 7.30 when a football game's on TV. They don't understand why they need to eat their breakfast or lunch or dinner. They don't understand a lot that we ask them to do because they don't see the bigger picture. And as much as you tell them they don't see the bigger picture, they still don't understand. But as parents, we understand the bigger picture. We understand what happens when you have a grumpy five-year-old who's hungry. 
or a seven-year-old who stayed up watching football too late. We know the consequences. We know the bigger picture. And so when parents know the bigger picture, and when parents are good and wise, looking out for the good of their kids, parents who are concerned for the well-being of their children, those parents can be trusted because they're parents who care even when total understanding is lacking. That's what the preacher is saying. You, you may not understand why God is sending you through this. We as a church, we may not understand why we're experiencing what we're experiencing now, but we can know God. And we can trust him because he's wise and he's good and he sees the big picture. And so that's why in verses 12 through 13, the preacher reaches the conclusion that he does. A conclusion that's similar to when he reached at the end of chapter 2. In verse 12, he says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Throughout all the seasons, be joyful and do good. In verse 13, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And so the preacher, in in conclusion, is saying, in light of the constantly changing seasons of of this life under the sun, in light of the, the divine ordering by a good and wise God, the only fitting response For us to live is, he says, to be joyful, to do good, to eat, drink, and take pleasure in all our toil. And so life under the sun, in and out of seasons, to enjoy life under the sun is God's gift to man. While we can't escape the seasons of life or the God-ordained times for us, we can recognize that God is working from a bigger picture and we can take pleasure in the season that we find ourselves in knowing that it's part of his plan. Because at the end of the day, we're not God, and we can't change the seasons. We can't. What God does, he says in verse 14, lasts forever. He's the one whose toil and whose activity lasts forever. He's the one whose actions can never be altered. And so when he orders and organizes seasons, you're never going to change it. And what's more, verse 15, he is the only one who's outside of time, who knows what is and what has been and what will be. He's the one who can be trusted. And even to how, how verse 15 ends, there's a lot, of, a lot of discussion on what exactly that means when it says that, that he's the one who there in verse 15 seeks what's been driven away. And I think the point is that he, because he's outside of time, because that's true of him, nothing is ever truly lost. He's able to find and bring back what we think is lost. And I think he's transitioning into what's going to come next And next week, as he considers the ability of God to judge wickedness and injustice. So so if everything just fades off the scene, well, well, what what hope do we have that God's going to judge the wicked and the unjust? And he's saying, well, God is the one who's able to bring back what's lost and to judge all things. And and so he's going to transition to that. But the point here, before we transition to that, that we'll look there, Lord willing, next week. But now we close with a few points of applications from verses 1 through 15 about seasons and and enjoying God in the midst of seasons. And so I just have two applications, two points of application. First, seasons come and go. That, That is a simple application that you should simply recognize. Seasons come and go. Ecclesiastes tells us to learn now today that there really is a time for everything. Learning now that the season or seasons I am in will not always be the season of my life can at least help me prepare for the chapters of of my life that God has yet to write. I'm not going to be where I am now forever. It doesn't mean that the time to come will be easier. I'm not saying that. 
but it may help me not to be taken by surprise knowing that seasons come and go. Aware that seasons come and go, I may not, if, I, if I'm prepared for that and, and my expectations are, are, are shaped by that, I can adjust my step a little bit more when, when autumn or winter comes. I'm not shocked or surprised. I know that seasons are coming and going. I mean, the reality is that human life is full of changing, changing seasons. That's just the way it is. And so for some of you, the prospect of change is a great encouragement. Maybe you're in a season of, of disquiet and you think, yes, please, that change can't come soon enough. I can't wait for a positive change. Or others of you may be thinking the prospect of change is a great discouragement. Things are great right now. Things are going really well. Why do I have to experience another season? Wherever you are right now, you should know that you won't be there indefinitely. But with these changing seasons, the questions that you have to ask wherever you are right now is, okay, well, what do I do? What can I do here and now in this season? How do I endure the season that I'm in, or how do I endure the season that's coming? And you endure them, I think the the preacher would say, not by looking at the ever-changing seasons for your joy or satisfaction. You don't look to the season for joy and satisfaction because it's not going to last. It's going to change. It's going to be taken from under you. If that's where you're looking for hope and joy, you're going to be left wanting. So don't set your hope on the next season that you think is coming. I can't wait to retire. I can't wait to get married. I can't wait for a new house. I can't wait for grandchildren or great-grandchildren. You don't set your hope on the next season as if that will be the solution to all your problems. It's not going to work. Don't set your hope on the season you think is coming. Don't set your hope on the circumstantial change that you think is next on your highway. I can't wait to get out of this marriage. I can't wait for a new job. I can't wait until I get social security. You don't set your hope on a season or circumstance that may or may not be coming your way because it may come, but it may not. It is sinking sand and not worthy of your hope and satisfaction. It won't produce what you're looking for. And even if the season comes that you're hoping for, it could be taken away in a minute. You could be hoping for a a marriage that will satisfy, and then the next year your wife or husband are taken from you. Or a child that that you've been longing for and praying for, and here she comes, and then he or she can be gone. There's a season for everything. We can't set our hope on the changing seasons. And so instead of setting our hope there, we set our hope on God. He's the only one on whom we can set our hope. We find our joy and satisfaction in the one thing, in the one person who is constant, who does not change like the seasons. We hope in God. So whatever season you're in, whether it's good or bad, hope in God because your season's going to change, but he's not. And he is worth hoping in and pursuing and seeking satisfaction in. Which leads to the second and final point of application, which is simply this. Seasons come and go, application point one, application point two, seasons come and go according to God's plan. There is a bigger plan. And he is a good and wise God that we can trust. He orders our lives in such a way that that we fear him, as he said in verse 14. This is a a relational comment that, that God orders our lives in such a way that we look to him. He orders our lives that we're dependent on him. I mean, I mean, left to our own abilities and mental capacities, we'd be lost. 
and eternally confused. How, how does this work? Why, why did this come? Why did I go through this? What, what's next? Why? And we'd be lost if we're left to ourselves. But we're not. We're left to a God who's good and wise, who is ordering our lives. We live every season of our lives in the context of a creator who loves us and takes care of us. And he sees the bigger picture. And if you're here and you doubt whether God loves you and is coming to take care of you, you need to look no further than the person and work of his son. God has sent his son for you. How will he not with him freely give you all things? All things work together for your good because he sent his son to ensure it. Whether you think it's good or not, it is good. He set his love on display in his son on the cross and in his son raised from the dead. And, and we can trust that whatever else comes from him is for our good and from his heart. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, you'll never make sense of your life apart from recognizing that God sent his son to redeem you and make you his own. Apart from Jesus, you can know no lasting, satisfying relationship with God the Father, apart from Jesus. And so you're, you're going to be walking around this world with blinders on, unaware of why you're here, what you're here for, if you don't come to God through his son, Jesus Christ. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you so that you could live in every season trusting in the God who's committed to you. He sees the bigger picture. And so if you're here, you're one of God's children. You put your faith in Jesus because God lives forever and we will not, we can experience the several different times of our lives knowing that they're part of a bigger plan that I cannot see, which is visible to a good and wise God who sees the whole thing and not only sees the whole thing, but sees the whole thing as beautiful. And so for, for the follower of Jesus, part of being wise in this world is learning to accept that we only have, a, that we have only very limited access to the big picture. But that's okay Living well in this world means recognizing that when it comes to our own lives, we're not mini-gods, right? We're not made to be in control. This is his world. It's not our world. It's his picture, not our picture. We have all the pieces of our life given to us, and things come and go as the seasons change, and it's only God who knows exactly where everything is meant to go, in which order, and at what time, and why. And so we are able to live our lives trusting him regardless of what season we're in or what season is coming next. We serve the God of all seasons, and he can be trusted. Let's pray as we close.